If you were with us last week, you will know that it was Reformation Sunday, and we use that as an opportunity to launch a new five-week sermon series where we are going to be looking at the Canons of Dort. That's one of the three confessions of our denomination, probably the one that's most distinctively defines what the Reformed branch of faith looks like. In fact, the five headings of the Canons of Dort are often called the Five Points of Calvinism, summarized in the acronym we were introduced to last week, TULIP. To introduce our second statement of the doctrines, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9. I could have read the whole entire chapter, but we'll be focusing on verses 6 through 18 this morning in your pew Bibles. That's found on page 1,123, and I would encourage you, though the words will be on the screen, to open up your pew Bibles as we're going to be working and walking through this text uh, pretty carefully this morning. Again, from the epistle to the Romans, we're reading in chapter 9, verses 6 through 18. Scripture says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's good God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week when we started this sermon series, Pastor Brent said that the question that was before us was, how sinful are we? And in asking that question, the short answer to that is we are entirely sinful. Sin taints every area of our life and all that we are. That teaching summarized the T in TULIP. We are totally depraved. But that immediately leads to our next question for this morning. If we are totally depraved, then how is it that some 
get saved? How can it be that in this pile of depraved human beings, there are some who believe that they have been forgiven of their sins and will go to heaven when they die? Well, in seeking an answer to that question, the Arminians, the followers of Jacob Arminius, who had written their own document in the year 1610 that the canons of Dort are responding to, they would say, how are those people saved? Well, that when in looking at humanity and deciding whom to save, God in his infinite ability looks forward in history and he recognizes certain people with certain attributes, that they have a faith in him, that they will live for him, and because he knows the future, he chooses people that he knows will first choose him. But when the Synod of Dort met to examine and discuss this Arminian document in their council or their synod of 1618 and 19, they didn't think that that was the right answer that Scripture gives to that question. With the understanding that all humanity is totally depraved, we start with the idea that all people are justly condemned by God. However, God does choose to save some through the work of Jesus Christ, but instead of that choice being based on anything in the person chosen, how much they put in the offering plate throughout their life, how good their church attendance was, or even future knowledge of their faith, the canons stated that God's choice to save some was not based in anything in that person, that their election was instead unconditional. And that is the U in the acronym TULIP that we will be looking at this morning, unconditional election, meaning that when God chooses to save some, his choice is not based on anything particular about that person, but it is only based in, the good, in his good pleasure to save whom he chooses to save. Now, I know already I just dumped a whole lot of big words and huge concepts in your lap at the very beginning of this message, and it probably has already stirred a lot of questions that you're asking or have asked uh, yourself about this in the past. Now, in order to address, well, where do we come up with that understanding? I'm going to slow down. And we're just going to walk through this text from Romans 9 that we looked at. In fact, Bailey, forgive me, I'm going to go ahead and control a little bit to keep the text in front of us as we walk through it. So first of all, let's get some context to where we are in Romans chapter 9. Leading up to Romans 9, Paul has been celebrating the fact that because of Jesus Christ, the gates have been opened, and now the promises of God, a relationship with God, the assurance that people can be part of the family of God, has extended not just to the Israelite nation, but to Gentiles as well. Now people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, whomever believes in Jesus Christ, can know with assurance that nothing will ever be able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is how chapter 8 ends. But that now means that some Israelites who rejected Jesus 
We're now also rejecting the love of God and we're therefore falling outside of the family of God. And that leads to the question of the verse which we started at verse 6. Does that mean that the word of God, his promises to the Israelites had failed? God had made these promises of blessings all the way back to their forefather Abraham. But now that these people were rejecting Christ, does that mean that God had failed in keeping his promises to the Israelites? And if he failed in that promise, does that mean that God is not trustworthy in any of his promises? That he might change his mind about the very gospel itself and that his word is not reliable? That is the question before Paul and before us. And while Paul is willing to entertain and address that concern, his clear answer is no. God's word has not failed. He has not neglected his promises. In fact, God's word is always true. And to support that claim, he says in verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Meaning that you could really say that there had always been, in some ways, two Israels. The one Israel was the physical Israelites. Those that if they took a DNA test, they would be able to trace back their ancestry all the way to their father Abraham. And that they could claim to be one of his descendants. But every one of those physical descendants was never automatically part of the spiritual Israel. The recipients and carriers of the promise of God, part of the covenant community of God. And to support that, Paul goes back in history. And he looks in verses 7 through 9 to discuss the differences between Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, the recipient of God's covenant promises, had two physical sons. The first was Ishmael. But as the text highlights, without even mentioning Ishmael's name, the promise of God was not given through Ishmael, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Meaning, as it says in verse 8, this means that it was not the children of the flesh who were the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Meaning that from the very start, not all the physical descendants of Abraham were recipients of the, the promises. But of course, someone will say, well, that makes sense. Well, that was because Abraham tried to make a shortcut. And Ishmael, though it was one of Abraham's son, was an illegitimate son born of the servant woman Hagar. And that God's promise was through the true wife of Abraham, Sarah. And so that was why Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. But that thought leads to the second example that Paul brings up. And that's in verses 10 through 13 of our text. And in there he talks about the example of Esau and Jacob. Unlike Ishmael and Isaac, these two were twins. So not only did they have the same father and mother, 
but they were conceived at the very same time as well. So there's nothing to separate these two from one another. In fact, if there is anything to differentiate Esau from Jacob, it's the fact that even though they were twins, it was known that Esau was the one who was born first and therefore had the claim to be the firstborn child and all the benefits and rights that a firstborn was able to accept. And yet, we don't talk about the descendants of Abraham being Esauites. We talk about them as Israelites, the other name of Jacob. And our text explains that even before they were born and had done nothing good or bad, Rebekah was told by God that the older will serve the younger. And so again, we have the continuing of the argument, the very clear example where both of these boys were physical descendants of the very same parents and yet it was only through the one that the promise of God was passed along through Jacob. And the question can be asked. Our question. Why? Why was Jacob the recipient of the promise and not Esau, the firstborn? Why was Isaac the recipient of the promise and not Ishmael? And as soon as we ask that question... It gets answered in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The point being that God didn't pick Jacob because he knew he was going to be a really good guy. And he liked him better than he liked Esau. But his choice was according only to God's good purpose of election. And therefore, the people of God and the promises of God's covenant were passed along through Jacob. And that leads to another question. The question that a lot of people ask whenever they approach this subject. And that is, well, is that fair? Or as Paul anticipates the question and he puts it in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the clear and emphatic answer that Paul gives to that charge is by no means. Absolutely not. When all of us are totally depraved, it is not unfair for God to not choose anyone. Therefore, when he does choose to extend his mercy to some, that is entirely fair and entirely up to him. Again, Paul supports this with a quote from the Old Testament when God says to Moses in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then summarizing the whole point, it says in verse 16, So then... Are we? Yes, it is up there. Okay. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Which answers the question pretty clearly. 
Why did God choose one or why does he pick one over the other? When God chooses some to show mercy in election, it's not because he looks at all of these totally depraved people at us and says, well, I like you better. Or I think you represent me better than others. Or even I know that you will eventually believe in me in the future. No, his election of people is unconditional. There is nothing special or different or better in anyone that causes God to choose them. It all is done according to God's good pleasure. God doesn't choose the us because we believe in him. We believe in him because he has chosen us and has chosen to reveal himself and his grace to us. So, hopefully we are now at the point to at least recognize that this doctrine that we are looking at is not just some idea that people thought would be fun to interact with or explore, but that it is accurate according to the teachings of Scripture, of Romans 9 and elsewhere. But I am sure that there is already a lot of remaining questions that are swirling in your heads, not the very least of which is, okay, I guess I see that, but what's the big deal? Especially if in time and in our experience all agree that the only people that are saved are those that do express a faith in Jesus Christ, does it matter whether we say God chose them first or if they choose God? Well, let me use some of the remaining time that I have left to address that question with a few answers more than the first answer, which is, well, that's what we believe Scripture teaches. An important foundation to begin with. We see what Romans 9 and other texts say, and we have to be faithful to that. But what else makes a difference? Well, besides that important point, let me highlight two things that are mentioned in the Canons of Dort. The first comes in the area of assurance. How confident and certain can anyone be that they are the recipients of God's grace and will join him in glory when they die? Now, if like the Arminians say, your salvation is dependent on you, how good you are, how regularly you attend church, how pure and deep your faith is, then can you ever know that you are good enough? That your faith is pure enough? That you have all of the right beliefs? Can you trust yourself that you will be able to do what you need to do in order to get to heaven? I, with the canons, would suggest no. You can't trust yourself. You can't be assured that you are good enough. And if you thought that you were, I think we'd have to question your pride. But if, as the canons say, our salvation is not based in the value of ourselves, our goodness, our faith, but it is based entirely on the promises of God, then we can be assured that since God is the one that called us, he will be faithful to his promises, and he will carry us all the way to our home in glory. This is a point that's going to be developed later when we looked at the fifth point of the doctrine, the letter P. But now again, admittedly, a lot of people struggle with this concept. 
How do we, how can anyone know that they are chosen of God? If it is just according to his good purpose and his purpose and not based on things that we can do, how do we know that we are his chosen ones? And the canons answer that question by suggesting that since we are totally depraved, wherever we see the evidence of the Spirit working in our lives, in confessed sin, in demonstrations of the fruit of the Spirit, and even desiring to live for the glory of the Lord, that becomes assurance that God's at work in our lives and he has called us as one of his own. With that, let me also highlight another beautiful article that the canons include in this section related to assurance. Article 17 says that this assurance can not only be given to parents of children, not only to ourselves, but also to parents of children that die in infancy. Again, if our election is based on the sacraments that we participate in, in our expressions of faith at some point in our lives, what happens? What assurances are there for children that never live long enough to experience those sacraments, to make those expressions of faith? But again, if our election is based on the unconditional promises of God, the canon says in part, and I'm quoting here, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. What a beautiful promise of assurance. One joyful benefit of this doctrine is that we can have the greater assurance of our election if our hope is not in ourselves but based in the promises of God. Finally, there is the issue of, well, who gets the glory? Again, if the decision of God to elect someone is based on them or anything of their ability and strength then when they get to heaven, who gets the credit? Well, they can say, I did it. I sacrificed enough. I denied myself enough. I went to enough Sunday school classes and evening worship services and had the right amount and the right kind of faith. I did it, and I'm in heaven. How revolting does that sound? What then did Christ do on the cross? Where is his glory? Again, instead, if it is entirely the work of God in our lives through Jesus Christ and not at all to our credit, then Christ alone gets all the credit and all the glory. As another important text related to this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we get to heaven, instead of patting ourselves on the back, on the back we declare in humility, I don't belong here. I know I have not lived a good enough life. My faith was imperfect. My actions were far short of what I should have lived. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that I have been saved. To him alone be the glory.
Now, this doesn't mean that in this life we don't continue to strive towards sanctification, of living out our faith. It just means it changes the motivation. Now, instead of trying to serve God so that I receive the benefit of eternity with him, I serve God because I've received that gift. And I serve him out of gratitude for all that he has done for me, not for my own selfish gain. I know this doctrine can be hard to understand, a bit abstract, but not only does it properly reflect the teachings of Scripture, it gives us a deeper assurance of the hope that we have when we receive the promises of God and don't put our trust in ourselves. And furthermore, it increases the glory that God receives because he alone has done all that is necessary. In celebration of God's electing grace, let us worship and praise our Lord and Savior now and into eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we want to know you. We want to receive the gift of your Son and his grace to cleanse us, restore us, and make us anew. And yet that is something that we cannot do in our own strength or in our own ability. And though it might feel like we want to achieve, we are thankful that your promises are given to sinners like us. I pray, O oh Lord, that in celebration and reminding and remembering that God chooses me, that we will want to live for you. We will serve you. We will live lives worthy of the calling that we have received, and we will give you all the glory, praise, and honor. And so, Lord, as we go forth from this place and celebrating your call upon our lives, may we truly go forth, live for you, and spread that gospel hope grounded in your faithful word to all that we come in contact with. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.